This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the virtual studio is I've got two special guests actually Plato's Cave slash Primal Screen alumna, Lisa Kvartovich. Hello. Oh, hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad I didn't cock up your name then. Oh, very good. Very <laughs> impressive. You've obviously been saying a lot of Eastern European filmmakers' names in my absence. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. practicing a lot. <laughs> We've also got film reviewer and host of the International Pop Underground on your airways every Wednesday night, Anthony Crew. Hello. How do you do? <laughs> Uh, we'll be celebrating Melbourne's shift into a slightly less restricted lockdown with three hot <laughs> new releases. Uh, we'll start with Alex Gibney's documentary on the Trump administration's failed response to the global pandemic in Totally Under Control. Then we'll take to the stand for Aaron Sorkin's courtroom drama, The Trial of the Chicago 7. And finally, we'll go trick-or-treating through Adam Sandler's latest comedy, Hoobie Halloween, directed by Steve Brill. Um, it might explain, uh, that final uh, film might explain why my two usual co-hosts couldn't make it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> hey, so I can I just say this is uh, my first Zoom review show? I think I've, I came on for radio film, but this is my first time broadcasting on Zoom. So there may be some background babies screaming, that kind of thing. Oh, it all adds to it. (laughs) That's what we call colour in the business. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask Anthony because, you know, we we can all see each other in our screens. Anthony, is that one of those fake backgrounds or do you actually have a wonderful library behind you? (laughs) I have a library of thousands upon thousands of CDs. It's real. It's It's almost like music reviewing is your job or something. Yeah, I know. It's almost like I spent 20 years doing a radio show (laughs) for no pay. My partner uses a fake background of a library of books in his work meetings so that I can change pooey nappies behind him without his staff seeing. (laughs) So I did sort of question, yours looks remarkably like that, and I thought, is that a stock footage image or is he actually quite educated (laughs) (laughs) we'll find out over the course of of the show I reckon (laughs) but before we get um tucked into those cinematic treats uh it's time for the news So Disney Plus is putting out a new disclaimer before movies that include content that has been described as racist The warning about negative uh, depictions and mistreatment of people or cultures will appear before classics such as Dumbo, Aristocats and Peter Pan. Disney has also said that it's working with an external panel of experts to assess their content and ensure that it accurately represents global audiences. You're both parents. How do you you guys feel about this this change? I don't think... 
like it will mean much to the children watching <laughs> watching them having disclaimers at the front although it might be you know it, it might give the space to have a conversation about it um but yeah look I mean I welcome it but um I don't know does it mean that they're going to be playing Song of the South again or <laughs> are there like still films strictly off limits that are you know, part of the Disney blacklist. Yeah, that's interesting whether they will censor them completely. Yeah. I feel like maybe it's a good, it's more for the parents so that they, if any right. sort of questions come up after the viewing or during the viewing, they can maybe have that conversation. Mm. Yeah, yeah I interesting. Know. I don't know. What do you think, Anthony? Uh, I don't know if I have any profound thoughts about this. <laughs> <laughs> I always, on the spot. Yeah, I feel like when I was a younger person revisiting cinema history, I mean, I guess this is different because it's, uh, with regards to what is appropriate to children or not or what parents want to show their kids. But I always found there was like something interesting revisiting cinema's past and seeing the things that once happened um, that, uh, you know, like watching Breakfast at Tiffany's or something and being like, mm. whoa, you know, and it's yeah. like so horrifying to you, you know, watching it whenever I would have first seen it in the 90s or something and realising how far things have changed. It's so true. Actually, um, my partner and I, in our quest to find, you know, decent content for our daughter to watch, oh, she's now eight, she just turned eight, for her to watch uh, in lockdown, we've revisited things that we've loved from the 1980s, like you know, the labyrinth or um, the dark crystal, which she found terrifying. <laughs> um, and my partner played her the Goonies and the Little Rascals, which were both just effing horrendous, uh, particularly, you know, in, in the gender politics within them. Mm. And like, I actually had to turn them both off. Um, but it's just fascinating, like you say, Anthony, to sort of look back and see what was permissible at that time and also to sort of reflect on your own upbringing and think oh wow you know that's why I have all these sort of issues around my gender <laughs> identity and stuff you know yeah. quite shocking some of them and 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 you know it would have been quite subtle back then but it's so mm. obvious now to look at them in that I, yeah I just hope that it doesn't um lead to censorship of difficult or controversial material I think yeah. that's that it's always a concern with those things um, so in festival news, we have uh, the Indian Film Festival of Melbourne starting this Friday. Uh, it's an online event, of course. It's going to screen over 60 films in 17 languages and includes 34 international premieres and 56 Australian premieres, and it's running from October 23 to 30. So you can check that out at iffm.com.au for more information. So over the course of this pandemic, um, Primal Screen has uh, pivoted uh, to spotlight specials and themed retrospective highlights. Uh, cinemas here in Melbourne are, of course, still closed. Uh, but thankfully this week there are some fresh new releases on online streaming services to get us through our roadmap to reopening. So keeping within 25 kilometres of your home and definitely not getting on the beers, please join us for our first new release, it's clear the United States did not perform to the best of its ability with the coronavirus. What went wrong for us? The truth is that political leaders caused avoidable death and destruction. Totally under control uh, is the words Trump used to characterise his administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic in an interview earlier this year. Totally under control is also the name of Oscar-winning documentary maker Alex Gibney's latest film, which maps out in explicit detail the failings of the Trump administration 
over the course of the global pandemic. So from sidelining leading scientific experts, abandoning frontline medical workers to politicising preventative measures like masks and PPE, Gibney's investigative documentary plays out much more like a true crime thriller or a horror film. Um, Anthony, look, I don't have a cute segue. Um, I think I'm still kind of reeling from this film. Uh, what did you make of Gibney's documentary? Um, it's kind of played at a, almost as a tragic comedy at times. Like uh, early on they show, you know, the, the sort of, burlesque clownish figure of Donald Trump is you know playing golf he's speaking to his followers at rallies and it, it's kind of like laughable at first but then slowly the the horror kind of you know like uh settles in um it's it's really interesting watching a documentary film that's been turned around so quickly uh i guess aided by the streaming service world. Um, like right at the end, there's a final intertitle, which says the day after this film was completed, Trump was, you know, tested positive to COVID-19. Um, so it's interesting seeing, yeah, a documentary that's really dealing with, I guess, you know, the issue of this year or dealing with things in a really timely manner. I think that reflects like Alex Gibney. I've called him before, like in print, the hardest working man in documentary. Like since he made his breakout film, 2005's Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, he's made roughly 25 uh, feature mm-hmm. films. And in many ways, he's almost... Uh, chronicled the 20th century as it's happened he's made films about like enron Mm. wikileaks lance armstrong scientology theranos you know russian corporate uh corruption uh cyber terrorism sex abuse in the catholic church he's just this hugely prolific and kind of important figure in the world of like documentary making and it's it's i don't know heartening and horrifying to see him tackle the definitive subject of 2020 yeah, absolutely. It's kind it's kind of wild, isn't it, that he has been such a prominent voice in all of those those kind of ways and it's almost perfect that with the timing that it worked out. I mean, I think he was working on Agents of Chaos. I don't, have you either of you heard about yeah. that? Yeah, so he was working on that and then uh, apparently a friend of his um, passed away because of COVID and he kind of was prompted to make this, but he did it at the same time. So, yeah, kind yeah. of very much echoing yeah. what you're saying about him being very hardworking. Um, how about you, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, he was making it with two co-directors, two women as well, though, so uh, I think that made it possible for him to be working on several projects at once and they sort of said that, uh, well, I mean, it's interesting because it's 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 a documentary, you know, made in, during the time of COVID about COVID in the United States, and um, and much like we're conducting this, uh, you know, radio conversation via Zoom, so was this film. It could be, you know, equally called a Zoomimentary or something. Maybe that's going to be a new um, <laughs> genre of documentary that's going to come out first. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think there's a few being made now. Um, so, yeah, you know, cinematically there's not a lot to comment on for this film because so much of it, I mean, it's been made in lockdown and all the interviews um, have, or the interviewees rather have been given like camera setups within their yeah. homes. How wild was that? It was wild. Um, and and then so there's three directors, Alex Tiffany being one of them, and they've all sort of interviewed different people themselves in order to get it finished um, in this sort of timely fashion um but you know as anthony says the news cycle moves so fast here that there's this sort of you know ridiculous or sort of like hilarious postscript that um president trump you know who denounced corona the coronavirus as a hoax has now in fact contracted the said 
fictitious virus um, the day after the film was released. Um, you, you know, it's it's uh, it, the film did feel a little uh, rushed to me, and I guess that's because it's being made in real time, and it just doesn't have the benefit of hindsight yet, which a lot of um, you know, documentaries do have because they're sort of made mm. after the fact. Um, it's, yeah, it's yeah. crazy, isn't it, that so often when we're thinking about those kinds of stories where you're going back through and doing this, like, detailed takedown of, okay, at this date this is what the actions that this government made and at yep. this date, usually they're, like, from 50, 100 years ago and, you are you know, there is that benefit of hindsight, like you were saying. But yeah. kind of wild watching it as it happens. Like, it these, are, these are all familiar facts to us. These are all That's relatively right. recent. Yeah, I agree. And, like, if you've been glued to the US news cycle, as mm. myself and many people have in lockdown, there's not a lot new here. Um, but, yeah, like you say, seeing um, the US government's mishandling of the virus just lay bed in some kind of chronological nightmare is <laughs> truly alarming. Yeah. Um, and the documentary does answer some unknowns, I thought, anyway. Um, but, yeah, I think um, I did find a lot of this, um, some some of the reveals quite shocking, and sometimes it's not about so much that um, that we don't know that information. It's the way in which it's presented across this timeline. Yeah. So, um, well, the, the most revealing thing I think I found was, um, well, there were un, un, there are unknowns that I think were revealed and that is that Trump was truly informed about the virus and um, the level of risk posed for the American citizens um, and he actively chose to ignore um, that that advice. Um, He was briefed early, he knew the threats it posed and he actively chose to do nothing about it, just purely out of self-interest. In an election year he just wanted to downplay, um, you know, the virus and what it could do to the economy. Um, I think that's what's so scary about this. It is. Kind of what makes it a horror for me is it's not apathy. I mean, apathy is a big part of it. It's actually like actively working against um, a lot of the systems and procedures and scientists who had developed this plan, you know, decades in advance, you know, to be like in the case of something like this, this Mm -hmm. is how we'd respond. I mean, the fact that he, well, the administration sold PPE back overseas and then individual states had to rebuy it, um, repurchase it back at a higher rate. And then, yeah, and when they realise that there's, you know, the masks, uh, there's a a huge um, shortage of masks, they just say, oh, yeah, masks aren't that important. So it's it's wild having stuff that we've seen in the news. Also he said uh, he he made that statement that masks weren't important was because he knew that there there was a shortage. So we thought, okay, well, a way of of having enough masks for um, health workers is to tell the general public not to wear them, not to purchase them. So it's like he's politicised... Like masks, it's just it's insane, and it's stuff that you know. But when you get into the minutiae of it, it really is so terrifying. I thought I thought the mm. most um, the most sort of effective uh, part of the film for me was that interview with Max Kennedy, who was the grandson of Oh yeah, absolutely, Kennedy. yeah. Mm. And he's this idealistic twenty-something-year-old um, who, along with a handful of other idealistic twenty-year-olds, joined Jared Kushner's PPE supply chain task force. Now, is this, sorry, was this story something that was known and was publicly out there? Because I don't really follow the news that, it makes me way too depressed, but I had no idea about this story. And so it was such a, like, it was, you know, it was the film as tragicomedy embodied in one anecdote. Here is this person, you know, talking about how the task force was basically a bunch of 20-year-old interns left alone in a room. 
in a room surrounded by Fox News blaring at yeah. them with no training. I mean, it just sort of, I mean, just the fact that Jared Kushner was re- was was leading it is insanity, you know. Yeah. The White House is now populated with lawyers and businessmen. It's just. You know, yeah, it kind of, it's one of those things that the, the further this goes along, the more like David Icke's idea of like lizard men kind of feels a bit more real for me. <laughs> I just feel like that whole story you're right though that that volunteer his story by far is the most shocking I didn't know of it I didn't know about that um I didn't know it was populated with volunteers I knew Mm. that Jared Kushner was leading it but I mean this volunteer assumed he'd be going in and working with professionals (laughs) but he was just surrounded by lawyers who then left the room um and gave them no money to purchase PPE Mm. they had no idea about supply chains they were calling from their own laptops it was just um laughable it's just like python-esque you know yeah. it's just, yeah. uh, it was but it was terrifying as well and and that entire segment for me was the most illuminating and infuriating and it sort of detailed how the Trump administration blames their own failures on individual states mm. um, that don't have the same authorities and powers as the federal government um, mm. they drove up prices in a bidding war on masks and other people yeah. just to benefit private companies it's just Anyway, it's infuriating. The thing that I thought was odd about this film is that Trump gets off, I think, reasonably lightly. Like they mm. don't, he's not very harsh on him. And I just. Yeah, that was that. A, mm, that was apparently, been, oh, not a decision, but that was some, a criticism that has come up a lot in the response to this documentary. But who's actually accountable? Like there's so many option, opportunities for who you could speak to just to sort of to kind of have that level of interrogation. I wonder, and I don't know enough about this, but I wonder whether in trying to keep it sort of to get it churned out so quickly and to keep it under wraps, maybe that was a decision that they made. Um, do you know anything about that, Anthony? Or I'd... No, I have no idea. I don't think Donald Trump <laughs> gets it that easy in this film. I mean, I suppose it, it's not a withering critique of him but he certainly comes off as a terrible person you know and the footage of him which I've never really watched him in front of his rallies is utterly horrifying it's like Hitler reborn as a professional wrestler or something it's just these braying masses and he's serving them up these kind of theatrical platitudes um, it's definitely, uh, I don't know, grotesque. I guess for me, it's like the bigger picture of what the film is sort of beyond just creating this timeline, both visually and narratively of the government reaction to COVID. It's kind of about the failure of the American political system, mm-hmm. um, the American you know, government's uh, sort of decentralization or wanting to let the free market decide everything like that's their panacea for any kind of problems and it just goes to show that in a situation like a pandemic where things break out that um you know a a more stable uh, a more trusted perhaps even a more powerful state is able to uh, you know control things is able to help citizens is able to like i don't know minimize the horrors of it it like i've felt so many times of the past seven months but I'm kind of grateful to be living in Australia. I know that's probably not a great take that people want to hear, but having friends who live in Italy or Brazil or the United States of America, you're like, there are so many other places that have it uh, so much worse. And it's mm. to do with the government and the failures of their political system and, and the citizens' distrust of the government and the government's 
uh, almost contentious or hostile relationship to its own population. Mm, I think this that's something that has come, become so apparent is the the cracks within these systems and, like, that's true here, that's true, of course, in the US, um, especially in relation to the healthcare system and the most kind of vulnerable people in our society. It's, um, it is a pretty devastating documentary. Like, I, I found it quite quite upsetting I mean there were moments where I'm just like laughing at the like incredulous um you know I just couldn't believe a lot of this this information but I think that Gibney I mean he's a really excellent documentary maker and like I I, this is a pretty standard documentary in terms of like how it's made and I think like that whole kind of interview style and there's nothing kind of particularly spectacular about the documentary but I think he always manages to be really uh engaging and choose fascinating topics like Going Clear is still one of my favourite docos of his and um, Taxi to the Dark Side is amazing. So, like, I feel like he just has, he's a fantastic storyteller and I think I'm kind of glad that he's placed at the centre of telling this particular story. Yeah, and that kind of really traditional, straightforward documentary depiction plays really well Mm. on a streaming service. Like, there's nothing inherently cinematic about it, even though I've experienced most of his films you know, in the cinema, it's like this kind of stuff plays great on the small screen. It has the timeline manifest as this visual device and it's got talking heads and archival news footage and these things that perhaps in a cinematic setting I might be hoping for something more grand. But Mm. uh, just as a, it's just sort of like a, just a conveyance of information. Um, You know, it works well for small screens and streaming that's true, Anthony. It's quite yeah. intimate, isn't it? It's particularly like given that the interviews are conducted much the way we're conducting this. Yeah. Yeah, I'm finding seeing um, anyone wearing masks or any sort of like responses like that on screen really, um, I don't know, kind of comforting because I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Strange, isn't it? It's so present in our minds yeah and Um, I I, they invite that side of the film the sort of behind camera in front of the camera all the time you get lots of shots of the subjects walking towards a camera set up with this giant plastic sheet Mm. in front of it you know yeah you know just the circumstance I guess it in some ways it's probably wanting to convey to people hey we didn't break any social distancing guidelines in this film but it also I guess it goes to show you the logistics of what a film production is during a pandemic yeah during a time of lockdown you know the new COVID normal yeah Yeah. on screen for yeah I I mean I I think this is going to be one that is going to stand um as a very uh significant um documentary document yeah Yeah, absolutely um yeah this is in my mind absolutely horrifying but essential viewing uh alex gibney's documentary totally under control is available to rent or buy on the itunes store and it's currently streaming on doc play you're listening to primal screen on triple r triple r on fm digital online via the app you're listening to Primal Screen with special guests Lisa Kovatovich and Anthony Crew and myself. I prefer the term celebrity special guest. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> what's your What's your Twitter handle again? Something uh, film crew. <laughs> We're gonna be. So- <laughs> look, uh, I'm not really on that. That's just during myth, you know. <laughs> 
We have to make a decision right now, a decision I just assumed we'd already made four months ago when trial prep began. Are we using this trial to defend ourselves against very serious charges that could land us in prison for 10 years? Or are we using it to say a pointless fuck you to the establishment? Fuck you. That is what I was afraid. Wait, I don't know if you were saying fuck your answer. I was question. also confused. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. Written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, The Trial of the Chicago 7 is a historical legal drama that follows the trial of a group of protest organisers who campaigned against the Vietnam War. Known as the Chicago 7, they were charged with conspiracy and crossing state lines with the intention of inciting riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Sorkin's film features an ensemble cut cast. Uh, it includes Reddy, Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Kendall from Succession. Um, <laughs> Lisa, did Aaron Sorkin's courtroom drama appeal to you or was it guilty as charged? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, oh, very good. Um, look, I try. Uh, <laughs> um, I, well, I don't know. Look, I, I'm balanced. I don't think it was a particularly good film. Um you know, it's classic Sorkin with the things Sorkin's become renowned for, his West Wingian fast-paced dialogue, um, that intellectual sparring, you know, um, those moving displays of courage and righteousness. Um, I don't know, but those things, it's funny, I actually I do like Sorkin um, and my partner is like a diehard West Wing fan, so I've watched far too much of um, McSnuffy's intro and outro music that I care for, but I um I I don't mind Sorkin, but it's funny the things that um he's loved for I actually found uh were the things that made it kind of clumsy for me actually like it sort of alternated between you know self importance and oh, I don't know clowning or something it, it, um but I wondered if it was the script that was the problem or was if it was the fact that he was the director I don't know because mm, you know I've enjoyed like- Oh, sorry, I, mean, I was just going to say, like, yeah. often he's a better scriptwriter than director. I think that's kind Well, this of, is only his second directorial film, right? That's, like, it follows up right. Molly's Game. And I actually thought Molly's Game was very well directed for... So did I. So did I. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, originally Spielberg was supposed to direct this and uh, yeah. it's got quite a history, this film. I think it was 2006 he had asked Sorkin to write it um, and he was attached as uh, Spielberg was attached as the director, and then it's gone through I think many iterations of directors, yeah. and then following Molly's Game, um, Spielberg was like, well, you know what, you could how about you just direct it, which is you know fair enough. Um, but yeah, for me, I don't think I just it just lacked artistry for one thing. I, I you know mm. I really enjoyed David Finch's The Social Network, which um, Sorkin wrote, um, but yeah, but that's the- kind of peak Sorkin, and I think that's one thing that. Uh, that this film has a lot of antecedents. It has, like, you know, uh, A Few Good Men, which was the stage play and then screenplay with which Sorkin became famous. And then you have, like, the depositions in Social Network and Molly's Game. So here he is again with, like, a courtroom drama and you're kind of comparing it to these other courtroom dramas he's done more elegantly. I Mm. think the reason why Social Network works so well is it's so acidic and corrosive at its core Mm. it's very funny and fun but it's has a kind of almost a hostility to its subjects which I find really appealing in this one it felt like he was trying to write a Spielberg movie it's unambiguously moral and sincere and earnest it's about uh, 
beliefs in certain human truths. Um, there's little room for kind of moral grades. It's about principled people standing up for their principles in the face of, you know, essentially like a corrupt uh, governmental and legal system. And that's actually not that interesting. There's not really that much dramatic tension. The only real moments come with Eddie Redmayne's character, who's, I guess, the most centrist of these members of the radical left. Like yeah. the political. Don't, don't you feel like he's. Oh, I was going to say, he's don't you feel like, like he's just like a stand in for Sorkin? Like, it's I mean, just maybe like he's kind of like central this, left. <laughs> yeah, this like political realist who wants to work within the established yeah. systems, whereas other people want to destroy it. And he has these few moments of conflict with the rest of the group. But then later he's revealed to be this figure of genuine dissidence and, you know, fire. And he gets the final dramatic moment and the climactic, the literal climactic applause at the end of the film. Oh, I hated that. I think that was my. I she laughed out loud. Yeah, so did I. It's it's, it's a kind literal of slow clap. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a it's an amusing end to the film. Like yeah. it's trying to be this grandstanding, perhaps Spielbergian moment of like triumph, and the music swells and the camera dollies along, and it something about it felt a bit like twee or embarrassing. Oh, um, it is it is so hammy. I it think kind of reminded me <laughs> and especially when uh Frank Langella who plays the you know the, the the bad judge is like banging his gavel trying to get people <laughs> to sit down and no one will. It reminded me a bit at the end of uh Dead Poet Society with yeah. its own heroic standing on the desk moment and the teacher's like going, sit down, Mr. Anderson, sit down. And like the same thing's kind of happening here. It it feels more comic than it does, uh, you know, triumphant. Oh, absolutely. The judge, I think, is possibly the worst character and not because of the actor. The actor is wonderful. In fact, he, um, I've got his name now off the top Frank of my head. Frank Langella. Yeah, thank you. And he played Nixon in um, Frost Nixon. So like I, I think he's excellent. But um. The character itself, uh, the way it's drawn, is so, like, cardboard cutout villain. And it was just, I think that actually takes away from a lot of the really interesting um, real-life events that happen. And it actually was way worse than what is shown on screen. So it kind of actually takes away from the power when you show this character in such a one-dimensional way. Um, I didn't love this at all. Um, uh, I was not a fan. I just found it... um, had a real like TV movie vibe to it mm. um, where it was kind of this, the facts themselves were really interesting. I think I just would have preferred to have watched a documentary and there's actually a um, Haskell Wexler, um, ha- he's a cinematographer and, and filmmaker and he has um, he actually captured a lot of the protests um, from uh, his 1969 film um, Medium Cool and it's about a TV reporter who becomes involved with the, um, the National Convention, which is, of course, like the same setting as this film. And his film is like this blend of documentary and fiction. I think it's really like check that out. <laughs> it's way better. I don't know if it's streaming at the moment anywhere, but I think that this just kind of, um, I feel like this film, it's just like, it's a sort it's definitely like Sorkin's script and it's got that kind of snappy dialogue and things like that. But it's so obvious that Sorkin's loyalty is kind of with these white liberals and that's kind of the story that he's telling, but it just feels so narrow for what is such a significant, you know, time in history and um, it has know, that it's... Oscar Beatty quality <laughs> yes, too, where it's really absolutely. playing to the congregation and it's serving up a lot of platitudes. And I think that it's gotten generally like really strong positive reviews. Yeah, talking about talking about its timeliness. And I think that that's often something that 
I find and I would be frustrated by if I cared a bit more about Oscar season is that the timeliness of a film is sometimes confused for its artistry. Mm. Um, I guess the ultimate example of 2020, which we don't have to get into, is like Spike Lee's To Five Bloods, which I thought was an actively terrible film. I thought but that because was your it's, favorite. Yeah, because it's so because it's so timely and so of the moment, it's getting like yeah. you know it got like so much positive response yeah and- but actually because it's because it has that responsibility like sorry we're um talking about the trial of chicago seven because yeah. that film has this this timeliness i actually think that it's a bigger failure because it it doesn't get into the meat of the issue and i feel like while there is some mention to the blatant racism and the way in which um an agenda is pushed forward and and there's this miscarriage of justice, it actually doesn't do justice to that story because it does such a hammy job of it. And I think, you know, people are going to froth over like some of the performances and I think that that they are strong performances, but I, I don't know. I feel like it's actually... It's kind of I'm. I think that unknowingly, it will probably get lots of nominations, but it will. I'll be very angry about it. <laughs> I can't. I personally can't really imagine it getting many nominations. But hey, really, I. I, I mean, like best it's... wigs definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding wig I work. Just, I just job. feel like it will. It it ticks a lot of boxes. You know, okay. it's kind of got that feel good thing. Are we going to talk about Sasha Baron Cohen's um, performance now? Yeah. That's the headliner. Don't, no, you know what confuses me? When a character is playing a real-life person, I'm always kind of curious. I'm like, maybe the person talks like that. That's why this accent yeah. is so terrible. Maybe he has a real voice. Yeah, he has a very wonky accent for sure. Yeah. It's very wonky. Interestingly, um, is it Freddie Redmayne? Is that how you say it? Yeah. Eddie. Yeah. yeah, so, or oh, Eddie, sorry, is it? Yeah. yeah, I called him Reddy Edmain before. So, <laughs> um, so Eddie's British as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I thought he did a much better job at oh, embodying yeah. um, he, that character uh, c- compared to Sasha Baron Cohen. And I and I haven't liked Eddie in Redmain in many other things, to be honest. But I thought uh, he did a really wonderful job in this film, and and it just sort of. Uh, made Sasha Baron Cohen's performance. It just highlighted how poor it was for me. It was mm. really difficult to, to. Sometimes it's really hard to. I think he is a good actor. I think Sasha Baron Cohen is a good actor, but sometimes it's really hard to um, disassociate him from his comedic, um, yeah. you know, character creations. Yeah, yeah G and um, Borat, etc. But mm. there are moments where he, I thought he was good, but for the, it's yeah. quite difficult to go with him and suspend disbelief. I found in this film. Yeah, I think some of the interactions between the characters are actually really good, like the pacing and the timing between, you know, Sorkin's script. I mean, he has got that really unnatural, you know, quick patter to his script. Mm. But I actually think the the actors do a really excellent job with it. There were moments, like a handful of times, when I did have a good laugh at some of the exchanges. Um, so that's kind of one positive. Sure, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, yeah. and you mentioned it before about the ensemble cast. It's got some great beloved character actors in it, like John Carroll Lynch, uh, Frank Langella, Mark Rylance, yeah. you know, uh, Noah Robbins. It's got some, like, real deep cut that guys in it. Yeah, know? I totally had a lot of those moments. <laughs> I found myself Googling uh, Ben Shankman, who plays one of the lawyers, Leonard Wineglass. I'm like, oh, yeah. He was, he was such a uh, – Roger Dodger was one of the things that really jumped out when I was, like, looking back at his – but he was in so many films in the late 90s and – early 2000s he was in like pie and jesus's son and requiem mm-hmm. for a dream 
And I was like, this is his first film that he's been in in seven years since the bad Will Smith movie, Concussion. Wow. I was was glad to see his face on there. Yeah, I kind of love those, like, bit part (laughs) actors where you're like, you're so familiar to me. Yeah, sure. Wow. Hey, speaking of deep ensemble casts filled with uh, familiar faces, maybe that's a segue to talking about this horrifying... um, Um, but if you are interested in The Trial of the Chicago 7, it's currently available to stream on Netflix. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with celebrity film reviewer Anthony <laughs> Carew. <laughs> As he likes to be called. <laughs> yeah. And Lisa Kovacevic and myself, Flick Ford. So last year, Adam Sandler told Howard Stern that if he didn't win an Oscar for his performance in the Safdie Brothers film Uncut Gems, he would make a film, quote, so bad on purpose to punish (laughs) us. So for some inexplicable reason, the film received no Oscar nominations at all, uh, further proof that the Oscars are no longer a valid measure of quality cinema. Anyway, here's Adam Sandler's latest film. As a trained volunteer, I know what it's like when your spooky fun gets out of hand. The supermarket selling expired bacon. Janet at the library has not been herself lately. I heard a voice in the sewer. I'm sorry, I didn't recognize him. It's pretty impressive how long he's been a loser. Hoobie Halloween stars Adam Sandler as Hoobie Dubois a diligent and devoted deli counter worker who is routinely mocked and bullied by the fellow townsfolk of Salem. Hubie is committed to keeping the town safe and as the self-appointed monitor during Halloween, he has a big job on his hands when an inmate from a nearby psychiatric prison escapes and there seems to be a werewolf on the loose. Anthony, was Hubie (laughs) Halloween an uncut gem in your Netflix watch list or the longest yard from Funny People? Um, Well little bit of inside baseball here. I was about two minutes into watching this film and I sent Flick a message basically saying, I really want to stop. <laughs> like, I, I was, did hold you at gunpoint over this. So. That's true. I mean, just hearing his voice at the start, I was like, oh my God, is he going to do that silly voice for the entire movie? The answer is, of course, yes. Um I guess I guess in the context of a conversation about this movie, I have to say that I'm like not an Adam Sandler film. I have no nostalgic memories of his 90s comedies. You know, uh, if I look it up, um, Billy Madison came out when I was like 17 and Happy Gilmore when I was 18. Theoretically, that makes me like right in the sweet spot. But even at the time, I was like, these look fucking stupid. I'm not going to watch this. <laughs> Especially by like I was eighteen, I was that wanker watching Eric Romare movies or something. But um, <laughs> so I had no. It really feels like uh, of recent in his new sort of Netflix guys as just this person churning out content that it's he's supposed to be hitting double generations that like the people who grew up with his early comedies and now their children are watching them as well. Um, yeah, I agree. It feels like it's made for lovers of Sandler's earlier films. I mean, the film's populated with actors that appear in all those earlier films. 
Um, but it's also populated by actors that appear in all of his films. I just did a quick cursory IMDb search. Rob Schneider and Adam Sandler have been in 22 movies together. <laughs> and Adam actually, Sandler and Kevin James, 16. That's actually, Rob Schneider's performance in this is possibly my favourite, right up there with Steve Buscemi. And that's like a very low hurdle to jump mm. over. But in all honesty, I was like, oh, that was actually pretty good. <laughs> it was interesting seeing people who you have lots of fond feelings to show up and actually be kind of pretty good like Maya Rudolph is very funny and very charming in this movie you know um and she's playing opposite Tim Meadows who's hilarious and I mean I guess it's one of those things where it's like so much of it is so bad that anytime there's a moment where you're like oh that's all right it feels like a kind of this this gem that you're (laughs) seizing on or this you know it's like marking a terrible essay where you're just trying to pick out something half decent to be like oh you know good effort on these parts I I genuinely think like the supporting cast sort of brings brings this um because you know like the story is 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 kind of nothing isn't it Sure, oh. Acad- Academy Award nominee June Squibb is great. Oh, she yeah. plays Adam Sandler's mother. <laughs> excellent. Anyway, Lisa, you're about to tell us how much you love this film. Oh, yeah. No, I I just starting to watch this. I was just like, as if 2020 couldn't get any worse. <laughs> I was just like, it's an abomination. But um, it's funny you say that flick that this there's not much to this film. I thought there was too much, and I. Started- oh, I mean, I mean, like not much as in like not much good to like oh, no. drag out. Yes, <laughs> that's right. I, I, I tried to sort of summarize the film's plot at one point, and I was just it was dizzying. I couldn't do it. It was just so many things they're trying to pull in there. I don't think I laughed once, and I was up for some sort of escapism, you know, um, silly humor, slapstick, anything you got. I was up for it, but it was just. It was so drab and I felt like the the gags that were there were just so overplayed and overly laboured. Like there's this fun sort of bit about everyone in on this sort of local newscast um, all dressed up for Halloween and they're all wearing the same Harley Quinn outfit and um, it's this gag that like the, all the females are, are, are wearing this sort of highly sexualised thing and then there's a little girl wearing it and stuff but they sort of they just as if they we wouldn't get it. They just kind of overly explain the whole. Yeah, the so there's a bit. Yeah, there's a bit where a character literally says, "Oh, you went with Harley Quinn too." Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. So, yeah, we get it. Um, and I felt like it reminded me of Mean Girls actually, and how that did that sort of same sort of thing successfully. Like there was always this sort of stuff going on in the background of Mean Girls about like there's this there's this scene of a young girl sort of um, copying like a, a music video clip in the background um, and highly sexualizing herself. And it was much more, things like that were much more effective, obviously. But mm. this film, I just feel like, just lays it on so thick. And the um, June Squibb, who plays um, his mother, has all these like profane um, T-shirts with things like Bona Dona, I shaved my balls for this, Muff Diving School, et cetera, um, plastered on them, which would, maybe be funny if he didn't point it out to us all the time like it's yeah they were a bit overdone weren't they I I have to admit there were occasions when I laughed but I think that says more about my mental state right now and the effect of being a city in lockdown for so long I I feel so much embarrassment and so much shame (laughs) like I have to I've got a confession yeah did giggle I laughed during this film um so you talked about like what the film is about, which is 
essentially it's a revenge of the nerd story, right? It's like about bullies getting yeah. their own back, that there's this fundamentally decent person who just happens to have a silly voice. Um, who it's is never nerd. explained. Why does he speak like that? Why does Adam sound like his one voice? It's like, it's like this denotes stupid or something. Mm. It's bizarre. It just yeah. And so that central morality tale about people picking on, you know, someone and then getting their just desserts at the end, that didn't really play that well given Sandler's sense of comedy, which doesn't really have an empathetic human nature to it like it doesn't to me carry this fundamental respect for all the characters therein it often feels really kind of cruel and mocking like it's engaging in its own form of bullying for laughs and so to then be like served this morality play at the end yeah uh, it just it just was also um two-dimensional and in terms of the characterization and then just really kind of like a glib in this really unearned way at the end I feel like that is so characteristic of a lot of his films, though, at the start, you know, start of his career, like the ones that he's kind of well known for. That is completely the tone that they that they adopt. Um, I don't know whether um, after that sort of rave review from all three of us, whether you do want to check out Who Be Halloween, but it is currently screening exclusively have, on Have Netflix. either of you watched any of his other sort of Netflix era films, you know? Like, no, but I think I think last year, I mean, I've, I mean, I've watched Uncut Jam, but um, wasn't the one you did with Jennifer Aniston recently the most popular yeah, film? Murder I've Mystery. Yeah. Mystery. I've not um, seen it. And the Do Over. Like those were. They seem like they got some kind of traction. But um, I, I kind of think if people are saying that these films aren't that bad, then it's just an indictment on the current state of the <laughs> film industry. It's just a wasteland out there at the moment. I'm just Actually, one. One thing I will say. One positive thing. I did actually really like the end credits. They're really well stylized and they have a blooper reel, which I think was the most heartening part of the entire film. <laughs> I enjoyed, um, yeah, right, things I enjoyed. Like they, there's obviously a lot of money being thrown at this because it was slick, like it looked yeah, really yeah. slick. And I enjoyed, uh, and I don't know what, I know that it's borrowed from another film of the 80s horror genre, but um, I enjoyed the radio voiceover that, that carries oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the whole film and that and that was the only thing that kind of tied the film together for me and and you know it actually had a lot of elements that could have um you know built up to something but it just nothing was sort of tied together that well I, yeah I just but it's but yeah it's pleasant to look at you know <laughs> I give it that <laughs> I'll, put, I'll put that on the poster well, it was interesting flick you talking about um the blooper reel and find that heartening. I read this thing recently. It was like uh, something being written about Scott Pilgrim versus the world's like 10 year anniversary. And the writer was talking about how they just found themselves watching the blooper reel for that over and over. And I think that there's something that we kind of like need or are really yearning for about seeing people in the same space, sometimes touching each other, like laughing together. It feels so out of place in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> true. Look at that communal um, joy. So, I mean, maybe if people want to feel that, you could just fire it up on Netflix and skip to the end credits. Yeah, so, true. I did well, notice that the end credits started 16 minutes before the film officially ends, which I was like, well, they're really, they're really padding this out. Yeah. 
Um, well, Hoobie Halloween is currently screening exclusively on Netflix. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with special guests Lisa Kovacevic and Anthony Carew and myself, Flick Ford. We reviewed three new releases. We opened with Alex Gibney's documentary on the Trump administration's mishandling of the global pandemic in Totally Under Control. Then we found order in the court for Aaron Sorkin's legal drama based on the real trial of anti-war protesters in the trial of the Chicago 7. And then we threw eggs and a critical axe at Adam Sandler in Steve Brill's Netflix film, Hoobie Halloween. Totally Under Control is available to stream on DocPlay or you can rent or buy it from the iTunes store and you can watch both the trial of the Chicago 7 and Hoobie Halloween on Netflix. Um, That'd be a strange double. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. And if Hoobie Halloween wasn't horror enough for you, we've got a very spooky special coming up next week with special guests, the Queen of Horror, film critic, author and academic Alexandra Helenicus-Nicholas. So make sure you tune in next week for our Horror Halloween special. If you've got some strong thoughts about tonight's film or just want to troll us with Adam Sandler quotes <laughs> and hit us up on Instagram at primal underscore screen underscore show, our Facebook page, or just tweet at us at primal underscore screen. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast and to Carl Chapman for paneling and providing producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 